Well, this evening we are uh, continuing our study. Looking at paragraph 2 of chapter 8 in the confession and looking at Christ the mediator. Colossians 2.9. Anybody have opportunity to put that to memory this week? Or reading it from the screen. <laughs> Let's read it together. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. One more time. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Really, that's a, a great summary in one verse of the doctrine of Christ. And much of what we're going to look at this evening, that Christ is God in flesh. That he has taken on flesh. Look at paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that, the, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person, is, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. This week, uh, we had the opportunity to go down to uh, the, the Ark and the Creation Museum for the, the NOAA conference, and as we were going down... I was listening to a sermon by Kevin DeYoung. He said this, One of the hallmarks of sliding into liberalism is no longer caring about being precise. No longer having an interest in defining what we mean. Settling for slogans instead of precision. He said that in the context of looking at a specific doctrine. And how the change of one tense of a word can throw you into error. And this just caused me to think about our, our, our focus upon Christ. And reading through the confession and you think, wow, these, these guys who wrote this, they were really wordy. But they weren't wordy for like flowery sake. They were wordy because each word is chosen carefully. Because with them carries a lot of truth behind it. That, that many, uh, even if you, on your way out, I, I put, uh, put on the table, uh, I did not create it, but somebody went through and went through all of, not all, but main errors or heresies on the doctrine of Christ. 
and who kind of proposed them and why we see the error to be wrong. But to think about the Council of Nicaea really was around one, one word in the Greek, but two words in English. That they saw such an error that one word in Greek would bring about an understanding that brought about a biblical understanding, a biblical correction. But as we see paragraph two here, it says the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Again, we've looked at the Trinity So we're looking specifically at the person of Christ, being very and eternal God. First of all, let's look at the deity of Christ. Now, in our our time this evening, we are not going to hit the the whole sum uh, of the deity of Christ. But I want to hit kind of the high points, and we're going to move pretty quickly. But first of all, we see the deity of Christ demonstrated in Scripture in Christ's attributes, He was eternal. In John 10 and 28, Jesus said, And I give to them eternal life. How can he give something that he himself does not possess? He's omnipresent. Think of uh, the the context of church discipline. He says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. How can Christ be in the midst of them if he is not omnipresent? You can't put that on the God the Father because it is speaking Christ in first person, saying, I will be in the midst of them. His omnipotence in Revelation 19.6 states the Lord God is omnipotent. But in 1 Timothy 6.15, it says that Jesus Christ himself is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we understand and we see his power over nature, illness, demons, and his works. But we also see it demonstrated in his titles. Think of the title that the angel said, and he will be in his and you shall give him the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Not subservient to God with us, but God Himself with us. The title of Savior is given to God the Father and God the Son. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. In Revelation, we see the Alpha and the Omega is the omnipotent God. But not only do his works and his attributes and his titles, but even the declarations in John 20. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and a God, my God, he says. And notice, does Jesus correct him? Does he say, no, worship is only allowed to God the Father? He says, no. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then in John chapter 10, the Jews took up stones against, again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. 
For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Uh, Often Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will say, Jesus never claimed to be God, but why were they stoning him here? Because he claimed to be God. We see Christ himself receiving worship that was only due to God, taking on the titles, attributes, and works. We see his deity upon display. But notice this paragraph. It speaks about how Christ being the very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him. So we see his his divinity Yet when the fullness of time had come, he took upon a man's nature. We see not just the deity of Christ, but the incarnation of Christ. Many of the the heresies uh, throughout history have been, how do those two work together? Some heresies will say he was never a man. Some will say he was never God. Some will say, well, He was kind of man and he was kind of God. Some will say that he was God, but then he turned into a man and left his godness. Others will say he was only a man and then became God and left his humanity. All of them are trying to say one or the other, but it is a both and. Notice that it says very God. And at the end of it, the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures are inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man. These words are important. It's not just kind of God and kind of man. It is very God and very man. And what we're doing here in this understanding of the person of christ is that we're drawing a clear line a clear line that he was fully god and at the same time he is fully man let's look at his incarnation in his incarnation notice the the paragraph two says he took upon him man's nature Christ never ceased being deity or never ceased being God. Colossians 2.9, again, for in him, what? Dwells all the, what? What's that word? Fullness. Okay, kids, I know we're in the summertime. Some of you maybe have started school. But what does fullness mean? If I had a glass and I said it was full, how much would be in there? Just this much? How much? This much? This much? No, full. Full means full, complete. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, we see here in this one verse so much truth, and that's why I chose it to be our memory verse, because so succinctly Scripture puts this, and yet we we begin to say, well, this is so hard to understand. No. 
it's not that it's complicated. It's that the Spirit has to give us understanding. The transfiguration was a momentary display of his glory. Uh, as we, we see in Matthew, uh, I think it's chapter 20, when uh, he takes the three up onto the mountain, they, they see a picture of his glory. Again, I, I said at the beginning that the Council of Nicaea in 325, one word, homoousia, literally meaning one in essence. And we see that same phrase up in paragraph two about the, uh, there's, I think this is all one sentence with lots of semicolons. and. But notice it says, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance. These men who frame this confession are, are taking from the Council of Nicaea. They're taking from uh, the, the, de, de, excuse me, the definition of faith at Chalcedon in 451 that says this, One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. Sound a little familiar? Again, these guys are not pulling these words out of thin air. But they're standing upon the shoulders of those who have fought to defend who Christ is. And you know what happens in a lot of churches? We say, well, here's our doctrinal statement. And we have one little paragraph. But the question is, what do you mean by those words? And that's why I believe it's important that we hold to a confession as a church. One that articulates these things but also to recognize that just because it's been put down on paper doesn't mean that there's never going to be any attacks upon it. I keep referencing this. But let me just mention this. A heresy came in at the end of the first century, one in the second century, another one in the second century, Another one in the 3rd century, a 3rd century, a 3rd century, a 4th century, 4th century. Now, notice in the 3rd century is when several of these confessions happened or these councils formed, but it didn't stop there. In the 4th fourth, fourth century, 4th fourth century, 5th century, 5th century, the 7th century, that the deity of Christ the incarnation of Christ and how those two go together is constantly under attack. And even in our own words, how sometimes we can say things and not really think carefully about it and we can present a false Christ, presenting just part of Christ, but he is very God and very man, fully God and fully man. <laughs> Even back in January, uh, at a at a Ligonier conference, uh, R.C. Sproul corrected John MacArthur for not using "very God" and "very man" because when you say "fully," you don't quite get the full sense of what it means. And two great friends in the in the faith, but sharpening iron and making sure we're careful with our words. 
But how do we see this? Christ is God in flesh from eternity past, and he holds all things together. All things were made by him and through him, and not, there was not anything that was made that was that is made that was made. So how does this work in his humanity? Again, we see the confession pulling from Philippians chapter 2. He took upon him man's nature. Christ added humanity to his deity. He did not leave his deity behind when he came to earth, but there are now two natures in one person. Again, two natures, one person. They are not to be They're without conversion, composition, or confusion. They're not mixed together. They're not divided. They're not changed from one to the other. And they cannot be put together in such a way that you can see them in such a way that that you can pull them all the way apart. But he is fully God and fully man. Again, the definition of faith at Chalcedon hits these same things. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, and no separation. Christ added humanity to his deity. And how did he do it? He does it voluntarily. He sets aside some translations of Philippians chapter 2 saying he emptied himself. And I, I think that's where sometimes those translations can, uh, can give us that feeling of he left his deity behind. But Christ voluntarily sets aside. What does he set aside? First of all, he sets aside his glory. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Notice that that's a past tense. He's recognizing the glory that he had, and that he would have that glory again. He set aside his independent authority by humbling himself, Philippians 2, 7, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming and coming in the likeness of men. Again, Christ did not dwell in bodily form from eternity past, but he took on flesh at his incarnation. That's that Psalm 2, today I have begotten thee. It's not a birthing of of physically the Father to the Son, but it is a picture of Him taking on humanity. He set aside also His open display of His divine attributes. For He does not know even when He would return in Matthew 24, 36. He set aside His eternal riches, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For now, for you know the grace of God excuse me, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. That through his poverty you might become rich. He also set aside his face-to-face relationship with the Father. 
It's interesting the the picture there in Philippians 2. He emptied himself and took on the form of a a servant. That's That's that word doulos in the Greek, meaning slave. That bond servant. And I think this is where some confusion comes because when we see Jesus say in John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. That he voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father. We saw that in looking at the Trinity. John 14.28, Jesus, when he says the Father is greater than I, what is he doing? It's in his humanity, in his submission, in his submission he's recognizing that. And in his humanity, he brought upon himself the ability to suffer and to be tempted. Think about it. When we begin to play with Christ not being fully God and fully man, we end up in error quickly. Because if he is not fully man, he cannot die. He cannot die for sin. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If he's just a spirit being, he can't die. Therefore, he can't stand in the place. But at the same time, he he has to be God to be the perfect sacrifice. It is because of this we understand that Christ... through his his birth being through the Virgin Mary, protects him and brings about his sinlessness in bodily form. But these two natures, and again you might say, okay, Chris, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. This isn't that big of a deal. But the attack is everywhere. He is fully God and fully man. We cannot even let down on that for but a moment. But as I was thinking about Christ being fully God and fully man, I was dwelling upon Hebrews 4. I want to close with this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. God the Father in his infinite wisdom would have Christ come in the most intimate way possible to be a savior, to be tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And maybe just a note of encouragement and and comfort as we think of the the tragic death of of Chris that Christ wept as well the shortest verse in the Bible John 11 35 what is it Jesus wept why was he weeping because of Lazarus Yet, Christ knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. Yet, he wept. 
he felt physical pain. And we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, not just in our temptations, but in our joys and our sorrows. And in that, he went to the cross willingly to be our substitute, to become our mediator between God and us. What what an amazing picture of a great God to provide that. But in doing so, to provide what could the only answer for our hope, for our, our sin problem. And our hope is that Christ is fully God and fully man. If he is lacking in either one of those, he can't be our substitute. But he was and is. And praise God for his provision. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for, in your infinite plan, how you provided a, a, a way of appeasing your wrath. And Jesus, we cannot even begin to fathom what it was like for you to leave heaven and come to this earth, to take on such a humble position. It was because of your great love that you came and you rescued an undeserving people. Lord, I I pray, Lord, that you would take the truth of these words. Lord, cause us to to hold Christ high, to, to see him in that perfect, fully God and fully man. And for us to to not err, emphasizing too much on his humanity and too much on his deity. But Lord, help us to see him as he is. Lord, that we might proclaim him as the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, thank you for these truths. Lord, help us as we go and to proclaim this amazing Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.